All right, I'll start. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. For February 2021, I am your host, Jim Laskowski. And boy, am I excited for today's returning guest, since he's not only one of my favorite Chicago-based cinephiles, He's also got he, he he's also a great filmmaker in his own right. Welcome back to the show, Sean Pierce. Thanks for having me, Jim. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> what which episodes were you on? You were on for Vim Vendors for sure. So yeah, I think the first one was Vim Vendors, and then I was on again for another New German New Wave guy, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Oh, the one that almost destroyed me. Yeah, which I believe. I think even Patrick said he wanted to quit after and <laughs> during it. Uh, <laughs> and then I was, I was supposed to be on Herzog with uh, the other crew. But oh, right. Unfortunately, yeah. I had to cancel because uh, some family came in town unexpectedly, but so yeah, I was, I was unable to do that one, but now here I am back with uh, changing it up from Germany to um, now Sweden. Yeah. Maybe you're going to have to be on for Bergman. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's one that's, you know, there are those touchstone all time directors, mainly the ones that Scorsese loves so much, you know, your Fellini and your Bergman and absolutely uh, Kurosawa. Like there, there's, there's some directors I'm very intimidated by still. <laughs> well, it's just, no matter what you watch, you just, you just don't feel like, especially because I went to film school and there's just certain directors that it's like, you never know enough about them. And that segue is nice to Roy Anderson because the more I learned about, I thought I knew Roy Anderson before this, doing this podcast. And the more I was reading about him, the more I was like, oh, I, how, how am I going to talk about this person with any sense of authority? Because there's so much to know, you know? And as, as you learn about Bergman and Fellini and Kurosawa, and it's like, oh, what, you know, you could watch 25 of the, of, Kurosawa's films and still be missing someone's favorite. Absolutely, yeah. And and for me, I th- and I think people know this. Obviously, especially if they're subscribers, I I hope they don't expect an episode to be the you know completest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know yeah. of of any director, it's it's funny because like I started I started writing this review about how, um. I feel less like a film critic and more of a film enthusiast. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of had to come to terms with that and be like, you know, it's okay. And most films are flawed and have imperfections, but I'm willing to embrace them more as I've gotten older rather than be more critical. And sure. You know, I, I would hope that people realize there's, <laughs> I'm not going to know everything. I'm not going to be even be, even be able to see every movie and it's more of a it's more of when i took a music appreciation class this is more like a film appreciation class yeah i think that's important it's 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 a club you know it's not it's director's club it's not like a it's not a classroom right it's not uh it's more of an extracurricular it's more it's more of an after school kind of uh fun discussion yeah well put um you know, and like I mentioned before we recorded, we're probably going to have a shorter show uh, due to just this plethora of bonus content uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. I I know people are, you know, 
they, they can listen to what they want and at their own pace. And certainly I noticed that the, the downloading process can be gradual uh, for a lot of episodes. Sure. Like people wait to catch up and obviously they wait till they see some of the movies to listen. But um, if you're a subscriber, all I can say is brace yourself. Uh, Cause you know, I got the yearly retrospective coming up with Colin and Eric and that alone is a beast. Um, those tend to go a bit long and I decided, well, I should have a, 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 a more shorter director uh, centric episode. And Roy Anderson is uh, probably a good one for that because he has, you know, nice, a, a nice modest filmography that we're going to cover as much as we can. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's funny because I first became familiar with him through previous guests and uh, yearly contributor who will be returning soon, Keith Gordon. Uh, he he mentioned him, I think, it's on an email once as uh, an underrated director, or he he might have even put, you know, a couple of his movies on a list of underrated movies. So when I saw that, I just I put uh, Pigeon in my queue because I think wasn't it on Netflix for a while? It was it's it was streaming on a lot of different things for yeah. a long time. It yeah, was, it, was. it was one of his few that is actually readily available. Right. And I remember trying to watch it, but then I fell asleep. It's like you have <laughs> to know what you're in for and you have to be prepared yeah. and you have to not be super tired and watch it like at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned that this was a director that you were a fan of. And, you know, initially I was skeptical, but... We'll get to that soon enough. I'm yeah. I'm really excited because I'm looking forward to it. It's a big turnaround in terms of going from being really skeptical to holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know why I keep attaching myself to like austere European directors, but uh, yeah, it's funny. So, what are you working on, real quick? Are you able to talk about it, or um, I'm not able to talk about it too much okay. because of some things but yeah no i've been working on a short film uh recently and oh, yeah. uh it's pr- i i told jim a little bit more that i'm allowed to talk about but it yeah was i won't exciting. mention i won't mention yeah any names but yeah pretty exciting stuff and um no uh you know i would say it's definitely something that i've not been i don't normally work with a lot of professional talent and so it was a big change for me in the sense that I've worked with a lot of talented people, but a lot of people that do it more for the love than for the profession. And so I was able to do a, been working on a project now that I was able to work with a, a very talented Chicago based actor. And uh, it was, it's been very, very fulfilling so far. So shooting more of it on Sunday and can't wait. Awesome. Congrats on that. I, you know, I obviously, both Patrick and I are fans of the films you worked on. And uh, I remember, geez, how long ago was that Meathead uh, interview that we did with everybody? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You, you <laughs> that was a while me ago. and the other people that worked on that uh, when it ca- the movie came out, which I believe was 2016. But it was a, I think you had seen the movie a couple of years before that. It, it took a while to be distributed. But, yeah, it's been a it's been a long time. I even worked on something for uh, with Patrick which um yeah which um if it's online so if anyone has if anyone's a fan of patrick he wrote and directed something called number 12 looks just like you i don't know if he's plugged it on this but 
if he hasn't, um, it was a really solid short, and he wrote and directed it. I'm sure you've seen it, Jim. Yes, I absolutely loved it, of course. And it's uh, it'll be linked in the show notes. I'm glad you brought it up. In addition to the fact that, uh, you know, my my initial entry point into film, at least from a creative angle, was the edit- editing side. Uh, yeah. You know, and obviously music too, music composing, but... I really, really, when I, you know, took a high school film class, you know, as much as I liked getting my friends together and getting goofy in front of a camera, my, my time was sitting in the editing room, in the editing bay. And uh, I love that experience. And I love being able to do it either with somebody or independently. And uh, I had the pleasure of editing one of Patrick's shorts called ADHD which absolutely i've seen it yeah which was which was a lot of fun very simple very straightforward it's only like a few minutes long uh but yeah that's that's something that i worked on recently that uh i hadn't hadn't planned on it it just sort of happened he just sort of sent me the files it's like hey can you do this and i went all right (laughs) oh wait then i don't think i've seen this one is this new uh well this was maybe a year ago oh i haven't seen this one adhd i'll send it to you is it out? It should be. I'm pretty sure he put it on Vimeo. Oh, well, I'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wonder if he could add it to Letterboxd. I don't know if he... Anything could be added just, to Letterboxd. I just found out that stuff was on Letterboxd. I, I had made some shorts, and I I mean, I'm, I'm kind of clueless when it comes to this, and I, I had been having this short play at festivals in the past year, and a friend of mine told me that this short film I made was on Letterboxd, and I will tell you, it was quite a pleasant surprise because it played uh, Fantastic Fest, which is a festival in Austin. And there were like 20 reviews of this short film I made and they were like really positive. And I was like, this is like the best little midday (laughs) pick me up. (laughs) It's like I was like reading reviews of it. It had more reviews than any feature I made. It was was like and they were really positive. I was like, this is great. Yeah, it's it's weird when that happens because I think I put the majority of my music on the internet. So it's it's like floating out there. I think there are still a lot of covers that have broken links and think mm-hmm. like when they were posted on blogs maybe 10 years ago or whatever. Uh and <laughs> you know, it, it it really sucked having at one point a hard drive that I sort of depended on and of course oh, no. it crashed and Oh no. So there there's certainly like I would say maybe 20 or 30 songs that might still be out there somewhere. And it's just weird when they, when they pop up randomly or somebody messaged me about it and say, uh, like (laughs) I did a song from the Muppet movie and they're like, Hey, can I use this for my, my YouTube video? I was like, Oh, that's right. I did do that cover. That's weird. (laughs) Like most of the time I can't remember half the things I've done. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) That's that's great. I mean, Letterbox is just an amazing place. I really yeah, and I feel bad because I've never reviewed any short film on Letterbox because I I I'm kind of lazy about Letterbox. But yeah, me too. I was like, all these people they took the time to review it and like wrote. Some people wrote long reviews. And I was like, wow, this is so. It was great. I like my wife and I wrote it together, and I like sent mm-hmm. it to her, and she was all pumped. It was great. <laughs> it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, well, you mentioned short films and the the 
the director I'm going to talk about for the What We Watch segment, uh, at least one of the movies I wanted to bring up quickly, she she had some success some success at South by Southwest and I think a couple of her film festivals, but her feature film recently came out and I'll be talking about that soon. Speaking of which, let's get let's get to what we watched this week, man. I'm excited. What did we watch? We watched this week. What movies did we watch this week? Wild Side, The Last Starfighter. Let's do it. Let's do it. I know this is this is shorter, and we're already spending ten minutes on the intro. That's okay. <laughs> it's good to talk with you again. It's been a while, you know. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah, I have. I don't know why, but I haven't seen anyone in the last year. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, there's nothing going on in the world at all. <laughs> uh, so the guest goes first, but um, like I said, I have a kind of a double header of two interesting films. One of which I know you've seen. But what is worth mentioning uh, in, in, on your end over there? Oh, okay. Um, well, I would say I haven't been watching much recently, but the last thing that I watched that I responded to, at least partially, was have you seen Viggo Mortensen's movie Falling? No. I. It's weird. I... I've mostly heard pretty negative things like at least the initial buzz on, you know, the usual social media outlets or maybe even into, I read an indie wire review or something and it, it didn't, it, I don't know. I think they were very harsh, but I'm still yeah. curious cause I am a fan of his. I would say, I would say watch it. I mean, I'm not, tr- I'm really not recommending this cause it was great. It's really just the last thing I saw that I, had an interest in but he wrote directed stars produced and did the score for this movie and because it was like this piano noodling is the score and i was like <laughs> that's was patrick's like, favorite this? kind of music <laughs> you know it's like i was like who did this like piano type like keys and this and you know like because it's Viggo mortensen you're like is this like bono you know what i mean just like got someone super famous and it was like, oh, he did it. So I, I would say it's not amazing, but it's it was worth watching. It's I mean, if anyone's had a family member with dementia, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of triggers or moments that are hard to watch because it's pretty triggering and that like weight of the outburst. And there's a lot of the the his father played by Lance Henriksen who. Most of the people that listen to this podcast are familiar with for his 70s and 80s genre stuff, but he puts in a very serious role as Viggo Mortensen's father, who has a severe case of dementia, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, and basically is fading away in front of his eyes, but was an angry father, and what's left that represents him is mostly his anger, and it's cross-cutting between moments of their Viggo Mortensen's parents' marriage falling apart with then modern day of Viggo Mortensen fully grown, who's now an out queer man. And his father is dealing with that simultaneously as processing his, his wife's leaving him 40 years ago. And it was, 
I don't know. I would say if you're intrigued by the thought of like an acting showcase and just what Viggo Mortensen as a writer, director, star, composer, I would say give it a watch. David Cronenberg is in it as a doctor for one scene. And it's just like, as a proctologist, it was it was just a like it was a weird movie. It was it's it's like weird hunting stories that clearly feel real. I don't know. I just I I would say like it's it, it's probably not my top twenty of last year, but as far as the first thing that I thought of, check out Falling, Viggo Mortensen's movie. Yeah, m- most people were not kind on Letterboxd. Now that I'm looking, most are in the two and a half three-star range which to me can be okay if the acting is strong and interesting and i'm a fan of all the people in the movie so yeah it's it's kind of interesting i i like watching actors this is like a weird subgenre but i i like watching actors directorial debut mm. because especially if an actor's been working for a while i feel like they have this thing where they think like oh i would do that differently and then when they direct a movie, even if it's not successful, I just like watching it just to see what they would do, if that yeah. makes sense. So I, I like, or especially if they're in it, where it's like, this is apparently who they want to play. Like when Ben Affleck's, I mean, I'm not a huge Ben Affleck fan, but whenever he directs himself, there's always like these weird shots of him shirtless. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I guess he like really thinks he's attractive. And like Viggo Mortensen is very sensitive and clearly he was just wanting to show how sensitive he was. I don't know. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like when you're writing a movie that you star in that you direct and you've only ever acted before, I feel like it's, you're writing something that you want to be or Hmm. be seen as. So I I find that very interesting. So I'd recommend it if you're curious about what Viggo Mortensen thinks he should play in a movie. And then just another quick thing to recommend, because I've never really heard anyone talk about it. Uh, it's a movie called Last and First Men. It's Johan Johansson's directorial debut that he, I don't, I don't know if he finished, but basically he directed a movie before he died, and I don't know exactly how he died. Yeah, I can't remember. I it's, it's I don't sad think it ever came he, out. He was the first person or the first composer. I. I interviewed for Voices and Visions, and then oh, yeah? he passed away. I don't, maybe a few years after the interview, uh, I yeah, think it was he after passed Arrival. Away like two years now, right? Yeah, I, I, well, it was definitely after Arrival, wasn't it? Like, I think it was like right after Blade Runner. Okay, yeah, that so makes like 20, sense. Twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. I don't know, but it yeah, was time it, it was weird. kind of a passed away under undisclosed circumstances, right? And he directed this movie. He made a short film about penguins that I really <laughs> liked. So then I, 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 I love the style of like cinematography type things with voiceover. And then, so he did that as a short and then he made this feature and it's only like 70 minutes long and it's adapted from, I want to say a German novel about aliens landing on a planet in the future but he filmed in this European architecture, basically on 16 millimeter. And he got all this crazy imagery of these, these structures in black and white in 16 millimeter. And it's gorgeous, totally stunning. 
and there's all these slow zooms and stuff. And then he scored the entire movie. And then Tilda Swinton narrates all the, the, the basically I'm assuming excerpts from the book. And so it's basically about 70 minutes. It feels very much like an art gallery piece, but I mean that in the best sense of the phrase. Like if you've ever gone to an art gallery and watched a piece and just sat there on a bench and just suddenly been transfixed by something, it has that quality. It's very hypnotic. And so um, I bought a CD of the score that contained the movie on (laughs) Blu-ray. So it's very, it's like one of those things where if you go on Letterboxd, it has like insanely high markings and everyone who watches it clearly just loves it. But it's it's not released. It's one of those things that's like going to come out on movie and no one's going to watch it. You know what I mean? But like, I, I really liked it. So if if you like Johan Johansson and you wish that he made more scores, seeing him as a filmmaker, once again, kind of hitting on that same Viggo Mortensen, seeing how someone that works on one side taking a leadership role. It's all that to me is always really fascinating. So. I guess that's kind of odd that I recommended two people that don't direct that directed, but yeah, check out last and first men. I'm sure it's one of those that'll just come out on streaming one day. And as a curiosity, it's, it's, it's really satisfying. I I watched it during the day with my wife and we just sort of sat there and just stared at it for an hour and 10 minutes and then just kind of processed it. It was really nice. Yeah. I was thinking you should do a spinoff actors turned directors club. That sounds great. Just the that'd, that'd be know. fun. At some point yeah. when you're less busy, I'm 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 down for 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 something like that because as a I'm sure there's a podcast about everything now. I mean it's it's impossible when like I think I have an idea and I'm, oh somebody's already done that. Okay, absolutely. But, but or or it's like so niche. Like I, I would love to do a podcast that's just called List of Shame, where you just force guests to watch a movie they've never seen that they're embarrassed they haven't seen, and then ooh, talk about it. Yeah, that would be. But good. I'm sure that exists because everyone has that movie, you know. That's like, oh, why have I not watched? Like for me, it's The Sound of Music. Never seen it. Yeah, neither have I. Never had a, never had like a a strong desire, but. Well, you know, you always hear about it and it's those things. And then, you know, obviously with just like recent news events, it's like, oh, I should, this will be the time that I watch The Sound of Music. And then suddenly I just rewatch Inside Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. It's like I, I sit down and go, all right, I'm going to finally watch Dr. Shivago. Oh, but yeah, that's a good one. Then, then I go, yeah, I'll just watch another Steven Soderbergh movie. Oh, okay, that, you're just literally so easier describing to my life. I, yeah. I just, especially in the past year, Steven Soderbergh, I have re is probably my most rewatched director. All I do is rewatch Steven Soderbergh movies. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're I so rewatchable. He makes the most rewatchable movies. I've seen Let Them All Talk twice. Yeah, that was good. That was good. I <laughs> yeah. I I think I've seen the informant at least four or five times now. That's probably my favorite. That or the Limey are my favorite yeah. Soderbergh's. Yeah, I love those movies for sure. Um, no, that's that's the thing too is like comfort films. 
you know, that's a whole, that could be a whole podcast too, where, Oh yeah. yeah you just, you know, having a bad day and you get home and fuck it. I'm just going to watch something I've seen over and over again, just because it's comforting. Like, especially the past year. Yeah, definitely. Steven Soderbergh is the quarantine stream of choice for me. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like midnight run because it was on cable so many yeah. times when I was growing up, it was just like, all right, I'll watch this again. <laughs> and, I think we're on the same page here, Jim. I, I rewatched Midnight Run during quarantine as well. Yes, of course. I think I think a, a pretty good Blu-ray came out. That's did it. Yeah. I I think it was for, it was streaming on something for free, and I was like Midnight Run. Yeah. Good oh old, yeah. Good old Midnight Run. I went through a whole De Niro kick during quarantine. I, I rewatched um, Mad Dog and Glory and yeah. quite a few others. It was it was good stuff. Yeah, John McNaughton. That's a that's a director I need to I need to do. It's like I think yeah. I think I was trying to decide which would be more interesting and I'm I'm getting the film junk guys on for next month. Oh yeah. Uh to talk David O. Russell. But it was oh. it was very close. I was thinking, you know, man, John McNaughton has such a crazy filmography. Uh but I I feel like you know, I think O. Russell is someone it's very difficult to talk about too in yeah. light of so many things that's you know come out about him uh behind I feel the scenes. like more and more is gonna keep coming out about him. I I hear I hear whispers every now and again. Mm. Yeah. Well <laughs> I but I'm a fan of his work and most of it. Most of it, not all of it, but yeah. <laughs> I mean John funny story really quick about John McNaughton. I used to have a therapist who was friends with John McNaughton. Wow. And then she'd always, every time I'd talk about something that was related to film, she'd pivot to a really long John McNaughton story. Because <laughs> like, cause he lives in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so she's friends with John McNaughton. So she'd always be like, that reminds me of my friend, John. And I won't go into details, but it's just a funny thing where wow. the therapy sessions became a lot of her ta- pivoting and relating about to what I said about John McNaughton, <laughs> it was like, and it became like a, a recurring thing where every week I was learning about a little bit about her friend John. <laughs> maybe, like, maybe I need to move to LA and find a therapist, and then be like, that reminds me of my friend Paul Thomas Anderson. That'd be great. Yeah, learn that'd a lot great. more about him. I I would lo- I guarantee you he has some therapist friends because I bet he's got some weird hangups. Oh yeah, if you've seen Phantom Thread, you know it. And, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's well, you can tell your therapist that I wound up in therapy because of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So, oh yeah. <laughs> well, no, not literally. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Hello. But, but no, like that that home invasion sequence with the camcorder uh, in oh. in Henry. Forget it. I was. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I remember it holding up pretty well. Yeah, that's that sequence in particular will forever stay with me like there are just moments in your life and yeah you know I, I i can sort of project into the past and see my younger self sitting in front of the tv while my parents are upstairs sleeping and here i am watching what i think is just going to be uh, like oh another schlocky slasher movie yeah <laughs> only it's called henry and uh that home invasion scene was like uh I don't think I want to be watching this right now because it almost looks like my basement. Oh no. Yeah. So I just kept picturing Henry and Otis coming into the basement 
for so long uh, after seeing that one. But whew. yeah, no, I McNaughton, I'm sure. I, I, I what the hell am I talking about? I, I interviewed the guy. I just completely forgot. Oh yeah, did you interview him for that Michael Shannon movie he did? Um, I don't think so. I think it was because it was the anniversary of Henry. It wasn't a oh. long interview. I I know I wanted it to be longer, but still, I think it was just really briefly through a publicist kind of a thing. But he's somebody I'd love yeah. to talk to for an hour. Well, you know, I have a therapist uh, number. Maybe they can, uh, friend of a friend, get you in touch. Fine by me. Uh, <laughs> but I, it's, it's funny. This is, it's it's nice when things segue beautifully. But love it. Uh, this is this is pretty good here. I, you know, saw a film called "I Blame Society," oh. and uh, I. I I don't write a lot of reviews, but I decided I'm going to write one for this over on VoicesVisions.net. Um, and I also had the chance of talking with the director. Um, so I think as a selling, let's I'll start off with this way. I, I, I think it's a selling point. I've been telling folks it's kind of like a mockumentary version of films most people adore, like American Psycho to die for heathers like really dark comedic satires and yet it's still quite original i would say uh and it started with something that happened to the filmmaker in real life she was told by some friends that she would make an excellent murderer which is a, a weird compliment <laughs> in and definitely of itself. a backhanded compliment yeah and, you know, she she herself, you know, in reality, I think I think her first short film came out in 2014 and then had another in 2017. And they won some awards uh, at South by Southwest, I believe. And it had been quite difficult for her to get a feature off the ground until now because she basically took that moment from her real life and applied it to this movie. So it's kind of like this weird deconstruction of a mockumentary because Jillian is the director and the star playing herself in this movie, playing an ambitious filmmaker who becomes a serial killer and goes around on a killing spree because she thinks it's going to be great entertainment for her film. And for me, at least, the end result is very entertaining. And yet also at the same time has a lot to say about where we're at with the Me Too movement and how we still have a long way to go when it comes to the industry embracing female voices and giving them a chance. And that sort of comes up, you know, some people could say, yeah, it's a little preachy the way it is. But I think because there's such sincerity and there's such conviction in the way she tells the story and is also interested in the psychology behind doing something like this. It all came across as really effective for me, at least. But at the same time, it's an entertaining dark comedy, like the ones I talked about, you know, like uh, Nicole Kidman's character into, into die for is very, very ambitious. 
And that movie is so good to die for. Yeah, it's so underrated, like in terms of totally. Gus Van Sant's filmography. Uh, and she, it's funny because her mentor, she mentioned this in the interview, was Buck Henry. Really? Yeah, she hung out with him a lot before he passed, and he would That's give her such no- a cool mentor. He, yeah, he would give her notes and stuff. And what? Yeah, Can you imagine getting notes from the writer of The Graduate. <laughs> I know, it's nuts. Jesus. That's amazing. Good for her. Yeah, yeah. No, she's she's somebody again. I would say would make a great like hour, two hour interview because she's a she's a true cinephile. Uh, awesome. She's written a lot of stuff and she's done like some extras for some Blu-rays, I believe. And I'm really glad she got to make this movie because it's 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 really dark, but its sense of humor is really up my alley. And I love that it did has it come out this year. Yeah, it just came out two weeks ago on vod awesome i'll yeah. check it out yeah it's not entirely an exploitation film you know but the the kills can be quite intense and gory uh but it all really quickly it brought up something interesting too because she has this really like indifferent boyfriend who you know is kind of like you know, i don't i don't i don't know why you're doing what you're doing and i don't necessarily care about you know what you're doing and it's some it's it's interesting because I, there's something I struggled with with in past relationships that I probably would work on with the therapist <laughs> where <laughs> I really want my partner to be like as excited about film and music and podcasting maybe not as excited but at least you know on the same yeah. close close to the same Absol- level Absolutely But but I also realize we're two different people <laughs> and I should expect that all the time from my partner and be like, did you watch this? And did you listen to this podcast I just did? And blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I get really enthused about, you know, the things I'm working on or the things I put out or even just watching movies. And it just, it just brought up to this, in this film, this relationship between her boyfriend is kind of funny because I'm like, yeah, I can, I always, I wonder how some relationships are successful when the two people have very different interests, you know, like the last person I dated was a huge gamer. So I wanted to sort of share that. And I, you know, got myself a PlayStation, decided to catch up, ask Patrick, of course, (laughs) for, for some advice and what games he thinks I would like. But there were times where I felt like, I think I'm forcing this, you know, forcing forcing the game in. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was enjoying it. It's not like I, I was doing it as a compromise or, I'm doing it only because she loves it. That wasn't it. I I was actually enjoying a lot of it, but at the same time, I was not in the, where I was with, you know, games is basically how she was with movies. Like I like, I like games. They're fun. Yeah. (laughs) But I love movies and I want to see all of them. So, (laughs) but she was like that with games. So it was just, it was weird because you know, there were times where I'm like, you want to stop playing that game and watch this cool new movie that's on VOD? And she'd be like, no, nah, I just want to keep playing this game. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another element of this movie that I like I sort of understood in some twisted way. But, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have to bring up, of course, this this other work of art that I can't help but talk about. 
which is called In and of Itself. Before I get into my reaction and my friend Sharon's very different reaction, Sean, what did you think of this? How do I, how do I describe it? I don't know. But do you... I guess like a performance piece? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. It's currently, I guess a show? Yeah. It's currently on Hulu. Um, I mean, first question, do you believe in magic as the song? So, yeah, um, I would say I'm not a huge viewer of magic shows. So for me, I'm like, I've, I've seen Penn and Teller and I've seen various illusionists before, but this one I thought tried to do something more obviously and I I will say that I I I found I was I thought it was effective. I I reacted to it, but I did feel a bit that I was losing out because I wasn't in the room and it was a bit heightened for me by how emotionally people were responding to it that I was almost at some times I was like okay this is this is impressive stuff but I think that like you know when you I don't know so so, so like I don't know how to describe it okay so let me put it the simplest way possible I've seen um, I saw American Utopia when it came to Chicago the David Byrne concert and it was incredible it was like a 10 out of 10 and then I've seen American Utopia, the Spike Lee concert doc. And for me, it was like a seven because I saw the live thing. But to, but Stop Making Sense is like one of the all-time greatest things. Probably because I was not there or born for the Stop Making Sense tour. So if, if, if I saw, you know what I mean? Like if, if I saw this thing in person, I bet I would be in tears. But because I was watching it, I was seeing these close-ups of him, and he's not an actor. He's a performer. And for me, sometimes I don't like watching performers perform. In Especially, like, I thought he was selling it pretty hard. Um, I think that, like, it lost a little bit for me. So I would say that if I was in the room for it, I think I would have been very moved. That's pretty close to my feelings. And... I agree mostly. And it's just, I think again, when things are really hyped up and you listen to a lot of podcasts or you start reading the Twitter verse or whatever, it, it, this thing was hailed as like, you, you need to watch this and your life will be changed. Yeah, I know. And that's kind of bugs me (laughs) when that, I mean, I think when I walked out of the tree of life, I might've said that. To people yeah uh but oh my god that was a that was a big deal when that came out yeah so i understand you have a strong emotional response to something i'm not gonna knock that i'm not gonna be like what's wrong with you mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and my friend sharon gave it half a star and it's it is it is manipulation like it's like it'd be like if you got mad that someone distracted you with sleight of hand it's like, yeah, that's so you don't see that they hid the card behind their hand. Like, you know, it's yeah. like, but the, th- yeah. the problem I I have is a me problem more than anything. But it's really 
I didn't get caught up in the emotional experience of it. And maybe it's because like, I'm, I'm walking into this going, all right, I'm ready to cry. I'm ready to be moved. Here we go. I cry at everything. Here we go. Yeah. I'm a crier as well. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, I understand why people are so moved. I understand, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of caught up in my head. I want to know how he did this stuff. And in those, in the moments with the letters and with the audience towards the end, I kind of go, okay, I know a magician is never going to reveal his tricks and there's not going to be, he's not going to put out a documentary about how he did it ever, which I think kind of bums me out. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a man of science. I want to, I want to see, maybe I'm weird in that way. Like I want to. No, I, I think that's part of the appeal of like a pen and teller is that they show you how to do the tricks and then yeah. that's also part of the trick. So like, I agree. Yeah. I Real quick, a total random aside when they show that book and they show what people did in the book and how creative they were were you did you think to yourself like fuck that's a lot of pressure if you got that book because you have to like hit that ante because some people were drawing like incredible works of art or like these like right paintings out of words or doing these cr- that one pop-up book person it was mm-hmm. like like they had a night to do that and it was probably a week night and i'm like they, they went home and they busted out the color pencils, and I, I was, I would be shaking in my boots if I had to do the page for the next day. I would too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I get caught up in my own head, so <laughs> it's, it's. Yeah, I'd write a sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. <laughs> I'm gonna write the greatest poem that anyone's yeah, ever read. Like, the creativity on display by these people was so impressive. It was like debilitating. Yeah, and I think that's part of his point, his thesis, you know, and uh, it's it's funny, like, because in the end, I kind of go, all right, I get it. It's like about identity and it's about how we're not just one thing. We're all a bunch of things and, you know, we're all sort of connected and stuff. And I... I'm fine with that. I'm I I can agree to some extent. I just thought the execution was kind of hokey at times, and yeah, I, mm, you know, I. It's like I really want to believe in this guy, it. but he's I can't. selling it pretty hard. Yeah, like that's the problem, and I think that's the problem Sharon had as well. Every time you cry, it's a bit tough to be like this because they keep hitting that he's done this 556 times or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's like, so this guy's fake cried 556 times. Right. But if you're an actor, you're thinking, okay, like you're caught up in the moment. But the fact that it's real can be tough because when you're crying in a performance, you know that it's part of the character. But when you're crying and it's the person playing themselves, it's like, okay, well, he's fake crying 556 <laughs> times. Even though they're doing the same thing, it's it's the context. Mm, yeah, that no, that makes sense. I. I guess I want a documentary called Behind the Magic. And I would watch that for sure. And I don't know, you know, if I bought him as having that catharsis every time. It's like No. You know, no way. That's <laughs> that in and of itself is kind of magical if that's true, but that would be psychotic. Yeah. Could you imagine having a nervous <laughs> breakdown every night for well, year, two years? At times this reminded me of church when everyone has been touched by the spirit. And I'm just like, uh, I, I don't, I'm not feeling it. 
I'm sorry. And they can only do that once a week. So like he's doing it. He's doing it six times and then two times on Saturday. This guy's this guy's you know touching people and they're shaking. It's just a lot. Yeah. But I, I will say the cards deck the cutting thing was was very impressive. I agree. And we're, I like the thing with the staging brick, it. The thing with the staging it. Yeah being a gun chamber and the whole Russian roulette thing, which is, it's a good concept, like clearly a good concept there with the six chambers. Like, you know, that, that was clever. Sure. You know, yeah. Frank Oz, love Bowfinger. <laughs> Dirty rotten scoundrels. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, talented director. That's a movie about con men and, you know, I don't know. Con yeah. Clearly, magic. clearly Frank Oz loves a good con and loves performance. Yeah. Didn't he also do the score with? Yeah, he directed <laughs> Frank Oz directed Marlon Brando. Yeah, and Marlon Brando and on apparently set. Apparently, they hated each other. Yeah, yeah, on set he would just only refer to him as Miss Piggy. Yeah, what a jerk. Yeah, no kidding. Marlon, can you imagine being so excited that you just cast Marlon Brando? I guarantee you, if Frank Oz's mom was alive, he called Frank Oz called his mom and was like, "Mom, I'm." directing marlon brando and then that guy just calls you miss piggy the entire time yeah i that guy got that guy got kind of weird with age yeah kind of just (laughs) just slightly yeah it's funny edward norton like told that story is like i'm on the set with robert de niro and marlon brando and marlon brando is calling the director miss piggy and de niro is falling asleep on set like constantly (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's a bad movie i i rewatched it recently um because i well i know i i don't I'd never seen the full thing it was it used to play on cable a lot and so i rewatched it but like I, for the first time kind of thing it's a bad movie yeah i'm a so, sucker uh, for heist movies in general but oh i love a good heist. yeah but that I've one i've been watching hmm. so many heist movies yeah have you seen uh oh crap uh hot rock with de niro or not de niro uh with robert redford no Ooh. That's a fun one. one. That's a lot of fun. Him and George Siegel together in the seventies, a diamond heist that keeps going wrong. Oh, I love a good diamond heist. (laughs) I forgot who directed it though. I know it's, I know it. Well, let me look it up. Otherwise I'm just going to be kicking myself, but I had so much fun watching that around Christmas time. I just watched a good heist movie like a couple months. What's the shit? See, I, I'm I'm having total brain fart. What's the Michael Cimino movie, the Clint Eastwood? Oh, Thunder with Jeff Bridges. Thunder, Thunder, yeah, th- and no, Thunderbird. Th- and what? Li- <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Thunderbird and Lightfoot. Is that it? Is that right? It's Thunder and Lightfoot, but yeah, maybe it's Thunderbird. That doesn't sound. I don't know. Every, there's someone listening Thunderbolt. to this Thunderbolt and like, yeah, I knew it wasn't Thunderbird. That's a car. Yeah. But that movie where they do a heist and then they plan to do it again in the exact same way because no one would think to do it again the same way. Ah. Great, great movie. But rewatching it now in 2020, and I hate to do this, but there is a scene in that movie Mm-mm. that is so terrible. And it's like, it's literally the... It crushes the movie because it's about um, it's basically like saying that women cry rape when they don't 
just to do it. And it's, it's out of nowhere. It's like, it's the most tasteless, disgusting joke. And the rest of the movie is incredible. But that scene is so offensive. It just torpedoes the whole movie. It's impossible to watch now. That's a shame. I'll but, watch, uh, I'll watch saying... anything with Jeff Bridges, too. Oh, and it's Jeff Bridges and Clint Eastwood bouncing off each other while they're planning a heist. And it's so good. Mm. And Jeff Bridges is in drag for the last third. <laughs> and looks gorgeous. Oh, great. But um yeah, no, but I just it's there's just a just an unexcusable joke in that movie. But sorry to that I don't know how we got there from the score, but we we did. Oh, the Hot Rock is uh directed by Peter Yates and the script Oh, Peter Yates. The script is William Goldman. There you go. Did Peter Yates do Friends of Eddie Coyle? Yes. Oh, so that is that a is that right during that time too? So he's yeah, like around this is really this is more comedic. It's almost like I think I might have even said this when I reviewed it. Was it's it's, it's like a it's a, like a precursor to sneakers. Oh, and you have a young strapping Redford, of course. Oh, George Siegel, Zero Mostel, <laughs> and Ron Liebman. Uh, it's it's wacky. I mean, it's not like slapsticky. It's just, uh, you know, it's kind of a comedic heist movie it's it's de- I, i'm positive soderbergh must be a fan because it has that sure feel to it so you gotta you gotta get yourself some hot rock i it sounds like honestly i'm always looking for a good heist movie recommendation so um i'll definitely check it out hot rock also nothing like a young robert redford you can just watch that face all day long right yeah, I know. I I I gotta talk about Cool Hand Luke at some point on this show. I don't think I ever well, have. Well, that's that's Paul Newman. Wait a minute, you're right. <laughs> oh, I'm cool, getting I'm cool getting Hand my Luke. handsome blue eyed actors all mixed up. Oh yeah, Cool Hand Luke's one of my one of my all time faves. I actually just rewatched that movie uh, like a week and a half ago. Oh, perfect movie. What we don't have is a failure to communicate right now. <laughs> We're about That's to uh, transition into the director of the episode, Mr. Anderson. Roy Anderson, that is. <laughs> I watch some films and commercials too. I was transfixed, sad and amused. True works of art. I've seen a pigeon sitting on a branch Reflecting on existence You living in unbound endlessness He is Ryan Anderson, my friend He is from Sweden, what a
Um, he's a fascinating filmmaker, man. I. Oh yeah. I I know you. You definitely know more. Did you, Did you get around to watching that documentary you you mentioned about him? No. Okay. I, yeah. Unfortunately, I I didn't, but I I will. I okay. will watch that and about endlessness as soon as I can. Yeah, I am too. And I'm I'm glad you told me how. Uh, and the, he is the master of the one take. And I know his work has gone on to acclaim over the years, but it's like I mentioned earlier, it's only recently that I finally caught up with it. Uh, in fact, when I saw that one of my favorite podcasters, Elric Kane, gave a Swedish love story five stars, I was like, well, shit, I, I better make time for one of his early outliers because I know early on, his style obviously drastically changed in between yeah. decades. Uh, Which I'm looking forward to talking about that change in detail. For sure. And I think we should first focus on the style of films he's mainly known for and done recently. Uh, sure. I, I want to know how you discovered this director and what appealed to you regarding his sensibility and his style. <laughs> First, tell me how you discovered Roy Anderson and what appealed to you regarding his sensibility and style. All right. So uh, let's just talk about it for the first time and definitely not a repeat after some technical <laughs> Well, at least it was only like a few minutes and not a whole hour. So, yeah, that's 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 good. Uh, I'll tell, you, tell it quicker, though, this time. Brevity and editing. Um, so basically I discovered him about a decade ago through a still, I believe of you, the living of the rock God in the dream fantasy with his newlywed wife. And I was immediately drawn because it reminded me of like Leningrad cowboys and that sort of European aesthetic. So I watched that and then immediately watched songs from the second floor and was just bowled over by the style. I I've always been a sucker for extended wide shots and stuff playing out in a wide it's my favorite type of movie and um then i discovered through just going to a jens leckman concert and his visual was swedish love story and i didn't know it was the same director that's such a great idea to do for a live show <laughs> absolutely it's so beautiful didn't need didn't at all need the dialogue and was struck with it immediately for totally different aesthetic reasons and was blown away that it was the same director. And then, so when pigeon set on a branch came out, I was, I remember just messaging people and just telling them, you need to watch Roy Anderson movies. It was, he's very much that type of director. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember reaching out to like uh Jade Hill from film junk and being like, you need to watch Roy Anderson movies. Like, just like, I don't even know why I would do it, but I'd send people Facebook messages back when people would do that. Just be like, you need to watch Roy Anderson because it, it's very much a, a wavelength. And I feel like people are either on it or they aren't. And, you know, it's even his ad work, everything about it, it's the, the same feeling. And it's also then just going back and learning of the history of his early work and his rejection of that. It's just a very fascinating filmmaker. Yeah, his insurance commercials. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, like he's the perfect director for first insurance ad yeah i think i saw online that someone uh i think i should cite him correctly uh robert enright called him the tragic optimist <laughs> which that's that's good. which honestly yeah it, it appeals 
to kind of how I see the world. Like I'm like, I don't know, half, half Patrick, half Mr. Rogers, you know, like I know we're doomed. The sun is going to explode one day. The planet's going to die. And, you know, some point all of humanity is going to be wiped out. There's no doubt. Uh, but I also can't mm-hmm. help have a sense of joy at the same time for this weird thing called life. And, you know, watching the, the trilogy of films that I think can essentially just be lumped together, although one kind of the, the middle one for me is the strongest. Uh, I, I, I get the same feeling that he, you know, recognizes that yes, there's tragedy, there's death, there's darkness, there's dread, but all that can be kind of beautiful. And basically Mm -hmm. this like, you know, painting a work of art that is, you know, sometimes kind of slow and dreary, like the pacing for these films are unlike anything else. And I mean that in both good ways and bad ways. Yeah, I I love that he has an aesthetic that you immediately see it and you know it's either his or someone just grossly ripping him off. Sure. Like, and that's always a, that's all, I mean, people try their whole life to create an aesthetic and obviously for better or for worse, directors like Wes Anderson have done it or, (laughs) you know. Bergman has done it to an extent, but Bergman would change his aesthetic. And mm-hmm. I think that like to obviously, I believe at one point that was Roy Anderson's mentor, but you Roy Anderson has a, an aesthetic that's entirely his own. And that's something that's admirable at the very least. No, I agree. And it's an acquired taste for sure. Absolutely. I'm sure he would probably say that <laughs> before anyone else. Yeah, because like I said, when I first tried, I think I I probably tried to watch Pigeon because Jay Shield put it on his top 10. Were you responsible for that? No, I would not take credit okay. for that. I, that's, <laughs> this was years before that, and I'm pretty sure Jay's uh, response was like one of those, thanks, I'll check it out, and then he didn't. But Because right. also Roy Anderson's movies, we haven't touched on this, are really hard to get in America. Yeah. You're going to have to order like a, I, I think there is uh, our, our guest and friend, Bill Ackerman mentioned via text. I should probably look right now just to confirm because he sent it earlier today and it was good news. <laughs> uh, the Roy Anderson collection is going to be released in the UK on March 29th by artificial eye. It will contain a Swedish love story, songs from the second floor, you the living, a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, about endlessness, and being a human person. Oh, the doc. I think it's going to be pricey. <laughs> yeah. For all those titles. But to have them all on Blu-ray? Mm, I am now a fan, so... I, yeah, I, I hope that eventually makes its way to the U.S. I yeah. unfortunately do not have a region-free player because I, I put my foot down long ago that I just I can't justify it. I know, I know. Because then I would just buy too many. It's tempting, but there are certain titles where I was like, "Ooh, I really need." Did you this. go region-free? Yeah, yeah, I got I got a region-free player. Uh, there's, 
but yeah, like even recently, I think it might even be today. Like I think Arrow might be doing a like a UK sale, and I'm like, mm, do I really need all that? I don't think so. Oh man, I I. I don't buy a lot of movies anymore physically, yeah. but that that's, it might be a se- separate conversation for a different day. Cause that could be a much longer podcast. But uh, I would say I, the ones I am tempted by are the indicators. Mm. I like those a lot. They, yeah. the, most of those are region free. Was, was a the, blue collar indicator. Yeah. Yeah. They have the beautiful rainbow kind of right. Right. Spine packaging. I, they do really good remasters of for sure stuff that, I mean, a lot of different types of 60s, 70s, and 80s stuff. Like, um, they have some good Hal Ashby on there, some Coppola, some stuff that's, like, a little bit maybe under the radar. But they have stuff like a beautiful remaster of, like, The Last Detail on there. That's, like, a, I mean, that's a pretty big get. And some other stuff that they, they did, uh, Night of the Demons, and this beautiful <laughs> box set. They, they're really good. I would say that Indicator um, I, it's probably one of my favorites labels that i actually buy stuff from well thanks and in most advance. of it's region free thanks in advance artificial eye for putting all these together uh i'll, I'll consider it depending on the price but i ooh, yeah so like i said he's an acquired taste since it's mostly non-narrative i mean there are recurring characters mm-hmm. that pop up in multiple vignettes it sometimes makes me think of like sketch comedy like SCTV or Monty Python. Sure. But, you know, it's, it's a little, little more existential and sometimes pretty yeah, dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was only like one that really turned me off, and that was the monkey one. The monkey mom. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Incision. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> oh, I love that one. I'm like, that, oh, that pu- that no. I, oh, I, I feel it. so bad for that monkey, dude. Yeah, you're supposed to. Uh you don't feel bad for the people? <laughs> Not all the time. Uh, I feel like the monkey's going through the same thing as some of those people. You're probably right. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that brings up an interesting point in that people feel worse for the the animals than the humans You're right. sometimes. Yeah. And they're all wearing this ghost makeup, this yeah. white makeup on their face. It just yeah. makes them look like they're the walking dead at times or something, you know? It's even in the commercials. It's so crazy. You watch a commercial and it looks just like the movies. And then at the end, it's like, eat more cheese. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, like you could use more red cheese. And it's like this cheese brand. It's like, they must have paid so much money because he he owns that studio with Studio 24 that he shoots all this stuff in. Wow. Yeah. He just he just owns a studio and they just work all the time on commercials or features. So interesting. Yeah, one of my favorite shots is actually something very simple with the couple on the beach with with the dog just lying there. With the dog? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really beautiful. And there's this nice behind-the-scenes clip on Vimeo that I will link in the show notes that shows how carefully constructed his scenes really are. I mean, oh. it took him four years to make Pigeon. Four years! Yeah. They build sets for months. Yeah. Months and months that they that's used for 30 seconds. It's an... It, it's so cool. It's so and cool. And the diffusion. And elaborate. The, the, the lighting is insane. And he casts pretty much non-professional actors. Yeah. Uh, and The leader of uh, the main character in Songs from the Second Floor oh. was cast at an Ikea. <laughs> which I can't think of a more Swedish thing, right. but he saw him at an Ikea. 
I I gotta say that's the one that like pretty much from beginning to end I'm like I I love everything. There's 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 nothing I would take out, nothing I would change. That ending is such a stunner. When oh yeah oh, oh yeah, that's like a that's that's if I was a film professor, <laughs> I would be showing that in class and be like, pay attention. This is this is how this is how you do it, man. This oh, is yeah. how you frame I, a shot. I'd be the guy that keeps saying it's and it's all one shot, you know. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. and I uh, I also like a lot of the dialogue in "You the Living." A psychiatrist says, "People demand to be happy at the same time as they are egocentric, selfish, and ungenerous." I'd like to be honest and say they are quite simply mean, most of them. So I've I've stopped trying to make a mean person happy. I just prescribe pills. The stronger, the better. Yeah, that's a great part. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's probably why I decided not to become a therapist. I mean, I feared being kind of burnt out on people and conversation and helping them because we're all just really complex characters in, 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 in life. And there's so many layers and there's so many things to uncover. And I almost don't know if you can get to a point where happiness is, can be consistent, <laughs> you know, because life is so inconsistent. Fuck. We just had, we have a pandemic. So <laughs> like, Absolutely. you know, that, that changed everything that changed any sense of consistency or normalcy for the entire world. So man, man I, I did think about that a little retired. bit. Yeah with Roy Anderson with the pandemic and just think because he speaks in such absolutes right mm -hmm. like especially with the the trilogy and everything looks the same right there's there's no shadows there's like these all these things it's like definitively like this is what it's like to be human right yeah but then I, I do feel like he's the type of person that would be like so intrigued by humanity in some instances changing over the last year and the way we interact with others, like there's so many things of like how crammed and uncomfortable stuff is that like, <laughs> if he made that now, it would be different because like in every elevator in all of his movies, there's always like six people too many. <laughs> and like, like every bus, 40 people get off or like every yeah. train, it like never ends. How many people are packed in like sardines. And it's like, it's just a very different place right now. And that, that's an interesting time to watch it. That sequence of the airport where they're all pushing their luggage. Good God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's so For, brilliant. And it's like weighs 10,000 pounds and they're all like sweating and barely moving. Yeah. Yeah. Like oh. that just, yeah, the imagery throughout all of his films, is, you know, especially like you mentioned when they're packed like sardines or something. In fact, this, this past week, as most people probably know, we had the most snow in I don't know how long, like over a foot, like maybe 18 inches or something. And the red line was shut down so that you couldn't take the train. You couldn't take the CTA. And so most people, if they had to get to work, they wound up on a crammed crowded bus in the midst of a pandemic. And yeah. I can't imagine the anxiety level of having to go through with that. I mean, it took me forever to just, you know, get out my car. And again, you know, this is, this is, it's like, ah, I'm all those poor people on the bus. I'm just getting in my car and I got to drive through all this snow. I don't like, 
you know, complaining. <laughs> and yeah, but yeah, it hits on the movie though. It it really feels like like there's several scenes where men are making love with their partner and they're just complaining the whole time about <laughs> something from work. And it's like they're so focused or like the guy that invested the money and lost it all. But he's oh. like currently I, I that might be in you the living or in song I don't remember. Do you remember the scene I'm talking about where uh, the, the woman's on top of yeah. him and he's talking about he invested and he lost 25%. Right. That's you the living. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's just he's so fixated on that that he's he's not even appreciating this moment that he's having where he's like making love with his partner. It's just a funny, like it, it feels very much like probably complaining about the car while you're on a car while people are stuck in a bus. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah. there's this hyper reality that wouldn't be out of place in something like Magnolia. Cause one of my favorite moments in songs from the second floor is when, you know, the, the main sad man, it, you know, the, the salesman, I guess it, he's, he's riding the subway and everybody starts lip syncing to some opera oh, yeah. around him. I'm just like, whoa, whoa, that's that's the kind of world I want. I wish we could live in, <laughs> but it's just so beautiful and weird. And you know, mm-hmm. I I think of that moment in Magnolia where the frogs are all falling from the sky, and Philip Seymour Hoffman just goes, "Oh, there's just there's frogs falling from the sky. Like it's no big deal." And he does it in this like almost non emotional mono, like monotone response. Like, Oh, yep. This is something that just happens. Okay. There's just frogs falling from the sky. So in a way I like can see, I, I I'm sure PTA must've seen a Roy Anderson film and can like, you know, some of the more weird things that he's thrown in stuff like punch drunk love wouldn't be out of place in these movies. I definitely think he's a director's director Yeah, in the sense that like, he does things that, like, I've heard even, like, uh, Lana Wachowski talk about Roy Anderson. Oh. And the admiration of being able to do an entire scene that plays out in one shot that you spend three months building. And you just, like, that's that's the scene. And whether it's something as big as in Pigeon when those the cavalry comes into that bar and the <laughs> horses are all walking, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the yep. same Pigeon. Or if it's something as small as just like a person getting into an elevator and someone not holding the button and then they have to take the stairs. And it's just like they they just construct these tableaus that are so humongous. And and also it's just it's so interesting to me that like his first movie is about children. And then for the most part, the only time you see a children, they're either crying or they're like forced to walk off a plank and die. <laughs> like there's just not a lot of kids in these movies. Yeah, there's the one one kid who's like yelling at his dad for being on a treadmill or for running on a treadmill. Yeah. And uh or there's the students that are screaming and the teacher's just like leaves the classroom. <laughs> like it's just like like clearly it's I I feel like Roy Anderson didn't have a good experience on Swedish Love Story. Yeah, and I think even more so with his follow-up, which I forgot how to pronounce. That's the, the yeah, I've never seen it. It's it's in, it's unreleased, in as far as I can find. Uh, once again, Bill Ackerman to the rescue. Uh, sent me a link, and I'll send you one too. But I don't know if it's. It might be just a UK release, or at least not 
our region. I'm not sure. Well, but, I, not yeah. We'll see. I, I got this VPN thing, so yeah, yeah, this has been a savior for the uh, Roy Anderson watching. I gotta say, when I when I went to this to to the site you referred me to, I was ecstatic that I can finally watch Hell Hartley's Amateur because it's nowhere to be found in the U.S. I'm like, you know, streaming and other ways. There's, I just it's, for some reason, a lot of his films are. Are, are, you can find them like a lot of the short films on Fandor or something, or you can mm-hmm. buy them through his website, but you can't just like, you know, stream trust anywhere. Yeah. How, what's, what's wrong with, why don't people, there's at least enough money to put a Hal Hartley box set together. Right? Yeah, I would think so. But I think it's possible that he owns all the rights to his movies or something like he's basically self-distributed. Maybe uh all of his work i'm sure bill knows way more than i do um but yeah why doesn't he put together a, a box set or like release them on vimeo on demand at the very least yeah. just to rent them out i'm sure he could use some money some yeah cheddar. but i've been i've been itching to see amateur for i don't know how long and it's it's a weird movie but again i think i bring up hal hartley uh i could see some parallels they have a dry sardonic wit about with with the way they approach humor you know i think it's very stylized it's very staged obviously uh but it's still it's still very human in, in this absurd manner that i mean i could i could certainly see showing the, the, these three movies the three the trilogy at least to people and they might sit there and go what am i watching and not laugh but for me, this is I, huge laughs, and yeah, you know. I, I think it's very funny. I think it it takes like a Jacques Tati type mm-hmm. build of visual storytelling and deep focus, where you build something in dimension, foreground, middle ground, background, and he's playful with it. Like you, the living, which is probably my favorite of his films. There's the scene where the man in the taxi cab tells the story of the dream he had of going to a dinner party where he tries the gag where you pull the runner from the table and all the plates stay still, but that it doesn't work, right? And then, so it's actually like brilliantly comedically structured. This was something that struck me this time. It's like, it's it's like Hitchcock when he talks about you show the bomb underneath the table and then then it's how you build suspense is you show the bomb underneath the table and then you cut outside the table and then people know that there's a bomb under the table the whole time. So the man says that there that he tries the gag of pulling the runner and it doesn't work and all the everything goes everywhere and he gets arrested and goes to prison. But then it cuts to then him doing it, right? Yep. And it doesn't just show him do it like most movies would, like like Family Guy would. Family Guy would say, hey, remember that one time I tried the runner gag? And then it would cut to him fucking it up, right? Yeah, but Quick, he says, quickly too, yeah. He says, remember that one time I tried the runner gag and it didn't work and I went to prison? And then it shows two minutes of him tr- looking and inspecting the table <laughs> and then people going, careful, that's expensive, careful that's irreplaceable and 200 years old. And it's literally, I don't think you should do it. And then even a kid chimes in and is like, should we eat first? (laughs) Which is so funny to me that 
someone has the thought of being like, hey, if he messes this up, the food will get ruined. And then he tries it. And then there's this part in the back of your mind that like, maybe it'll work. But he already told you it fails. Right. He does it. It shatters. And then it reveals that this table, what the runner was actually covering up, was Nazi swastikas. <sighs> and this is like a weird fascist thing where there were these this thing that they were secretly covering up that they were like fascists and then he goes on trial and his he's not crying but his lawyer is and his <laughs> lawyer right. is crying and then uh. there's the the jury not the jury but like the lawyer the like the judges they're all drinking these huge fucking beers yep. <laughs> it's like it's so funny to me and then it cuts to him at the electric ceremony and there's people eating popcorn and then the guy that's doing the electrocution is reading the manual on how to yep. use the electrocution oh, machine. Amazing. And it's so funny to me that like, it's literally like three great, it's the great joke of him setting up this gag and failing. And then him at the dinner failing, then the trial, which is funny. And then the, the electrocution <laughs> that is, the guy, I don't know, but the thought of the person that's running the electrocution reading the manual is just, <laughs> it was just, it's so well done. I don't even know how to describe it besides just like, like a lot of the scenes aren't funny, but they're like clever. But this was like, I was, I was howling. Right. It was so funny. No, I mean, totally. That's, that whole setup is brilliant and yeah, uh, it pays off and. Oh, yeah. I didn't even mention that the whole time he's telling the story, he's in bumper-to-bumper traffic and yeah. slowly moving. And it's... <laughs> which And he's, he's looking to- at the camera, too, isn't he? Yeah, and he, yeah, that, that movie has a weird fourth wall break, which the other two don't have, which I'm curious as to why you, the living, he chose to address the camera, but... it's yeah. a good question. Yeah. But he was influenced by um, Spanish painter Francisco Goya and... You know, it's it's it, it seems like he. We mentioned earlier that he took a turn after making two movies, and took a long break. And I I I'm guessing when we see the documentary, we'll learn more about his struggles. And certainly, he you know probably just his style and things things that he was trying to accomplish probably wasn't you know making bank so it, it's it's probably like good that he took that long almost like malik he took just took this really long break and then came back with a vengeance you know yeah they both came they both took a break i mean within five years of each other right and then they both came back within a year of each other which is kind of interesting that they both took these sabbaticals i believe terrence malik became a college professor i could be wrong but Roy Anderson just became a commercial director and directed sure. now close to 400 commercials. 400? So, oh my God. Yeah, which is so interesting that like someone's so fed up with movies that they then just direct commercials. You know what I mean? You just sure. don't see that. Like you think if anything, it's like I would be so turned off with filmmaking that I'd go to commercial. Like, but then the commercials he used to finance his movies. So it's, it's just very, it's a very interesting person. Yeah. And again incredibly original in ways that are striking and absolutely as i'm watching it i'm like i have no idea what to expect next from vignette to vignette and that's that's exciting i mean like i mentioned you know even in uh pigeon we do have 
we we follow two salesmen essentially mm -hmm. throughout most yeah. of them most of the vignettes and so you know there's there is a through line there and certainly the 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 running gag of the items that they're trying to sell uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that and and them showing up in different environments and stuff uh it's it's it, it pretty much worked every time um yeah especially with that laughing machine thing oh yeah especially with how they talk about how it's like super reliable and then their new product that they're really getting excited about <laughs> it's all that same tone yeah oh i love it yeah he it, and i was watching this and i was thinking too he's kind of more a more successful variant of someone like this filmmaker who hasn't made anything in a long time uh tarsim or tarsem yeah yeah you know he he's made these films that i would say don't always work on a script level they're a lot of them are mostly empty especially something like the cell i find it kind of gross but there's yeah. just these visuals where I'm watching it going, I've never seen anything like that before. And it's almost like looking at a painting hanging on a wall. They're just so beautifully constructed that I can go, you know what? I'll recommend the cell, but <laughs> I'm not a fan of the plot. I'm not a fan of the script. And yet there are some amazing, weird, trippy visuals in that movie and I think most of his movies really uh, the fall was pretty, I, that one really worked for me actually. Uh, that one hit when I was in high school and that was a big like high school, like, yeah. So cool type movie. Yeah, totally. And and it's just, you'll, there's things in that when you see them, you're like, Oh God, I, who, who, whose mind is this? Like who came up with, yeah. the, with some of this stuff? And you know, the cell has dream and nightmare imagery to boot. That's like, it wouldn't be out. I mean, it's more like an artistic nightmare in Elm Street or something. But, you know, as I'm watching Anderson, he's, yeah, he's like the more absurdist, surrealist, uh, existential version of doing that, that kind of shot and th those kind of ideas and just focusing on that. You know, sometimes the acting is a little flaky, but. It doesn't bother me. Oh yeah, you find it. You find it to be a bit. You know, just I, I'm always blown away by how good the acting is. I mean, it's 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 clear to me that they're not professional actors, but I don't think it's a bad thing. And you know, for for the most part, I think there's just you know maybe a couple of moments here and there where you know the characters are just like, eh, I'm not, I'm not always connecting with them, or I'm not always connecting with the scenes, but I think especially in songs from the second floor, I really got into the narrative of the main salesman, the main guy that we're following and what he's going through and how, you know, he's basically having an existential crisis and what does it all mean? All like that kind of shit works for me. I, I was also thinking of, you know, was Richard Linklater a fan? But then again, this like slacker, definitely came out before he was doing these types of films at all but i was thinking like you know how slacker is a series of vignettes with different characters kind of going from you know 
situation to situation. It's kind of interesting. I, I'm surprised, truly, his style is not ripped off more. Honestly, yeah. that's like a big takeaway for me. And this is coming from someone who's actually like, I could point to like five or six shots in my first movie, Meathead, that are direct <laughs> ripoffs of Roy Anderson staging, like truly. Now I have <laughs> like, to watch it again. If you want. But uh, it's basically like, I just don't know why more people don't rip off his style. Because for me, I, I'm i obsessed with like the way he stages his scenes. Yeah. And then not only just his scenes, but like I... I, I don't know why more movies aren't vignette-based. Like, um, I can only think of a few off the top of my head that are, like, truly vignette-based that are big movies. Like, I, I don't know why, like, you you, know, you alluded to David O. Russell. Like, I feel like David O. Russell could build, like, an amazing movie that's, like, 40 disconnected scenes of just, like, <laughs> things unraveling. Like, I would love to watch David O. Russell make a movie that stars every famous person in Hollywood that's just 40 disconnected scenes yeah, they combined tried, by a similar theme. They tried doing like anthology movies, certainly. You know, like yeah. your movie forty three. They were like, I want to make another Kentucky Fried movie for for now. That's basically like yeah. what their intent was. What there's that movie that's like um wild I think it's called Wild Things. It's maybe Spanish. Um, it's like maybe wild something. It's like a series of tableau type shorts it came out like 2014 2015 that was really good it was kind of like that but that was much more ambitious in the sense of it's like it's like basically short films okay and Hmm. i'm pretty sure that was an influence on the laundromat i don't know if you saw that soderbergh movie uh no i never did because again people weren't huge fans but i love soderbergh so so i I should see it it's it's de- it's on Netflix. It's definitely worth watching. I would say it's it's an interesting movie, and it, there's I wouldn't be surprised if Soderbergh was a Roy Anderson fan. But like the, in You the Living, there's a sequence where there's a man playing tuba, <laughs> and and then his wife comes in, says something right, and then it cuts downstairs, and then there's a man hitting the broom for the tuba, and yes. then. And then it cuts across the street at a man standing outside, I believe, like smoking a cigarette, just watching this. And it's just like, why is this not in more movies where it's just this weird interconnected, like, I'm not talking about like crash or something. <laughs> like I'm saying like, like where it's just like, this is like a life, right? Like there's that famous Herzog thing where he talks about like looking at a phone book and like each name in a phone book is a story. Like, why are there not more movies that just cover like, I know why, because it'd be really expensive and really hard, and it would take four years. We have to build stages, and just doesn't yeah. seem like a financially viable idea. You want to reuse sets, and you want to shoot all in one location. To do 50 setups is way more expensive than doing 10, but I just feel like it should be... like There's a movie from Iceland that came out last year called Echo that was on movie, where it's like 100 different one-minute short films. Ooh like Roy Anderson. Hmm. It's definitely Roy Anderson light. It's not as good. I've been to Iceland, so I watched it just because it's cool to see Iceland. Sure. But, like, I just don't know why his style isn't... Like, you look at, like, Wes Anderson. People, especially in independent comedies, ripped off that style for, like, a solid five years. Do you know, if if SCTV was still around today, they would be doing Roy Anderson. I would love it. I would love it. Yeah. Even if it's it, parody, it feels, you know, absolutely. It, was, it, it does feel like SCTV or 
magic like our flying circus like type stuff mm -hmm. like it does feel like that sometimes that absurdness but like why aren't things just ripping this off i i really don't i'm flabbergasted you know what it's you gotta do it man it... i wish you're gonna see <laughs> something i make and it's gonna be like wow this this guy just fucking ripped off roy anderson and i'll be like god bless is, him because the to... problem is i he just it's so subtle that it's like yeah. it's actually like harder to do because like very like there's certain gags there's a gag i think it's in songs from the second floor i i watched them all in the last week so they're kind of blending together exactly sure for me too the second floor. <laughs> but where you know there's a scene where the the i know it's in the second floor because it follows the guy who visits his son who's having who had the breakdown after writing too much oh, poetry it's so good and he's talking to the doctor for yes. like five minutes and then then the doctor walks up and is turns to the guy in the lab coat and is like, what are you doing wearing my coat? <laughs> and it's a patient the whole time. And it's That's, so funny. It's, it's brilliant like, subversion. It's like yeah. you expect something from that scene and then it delivers on a different level and you're just like, oh. yeah, you're overjoyed by the experience because for me, the one of the main reasons why I watch films, to be surprised, mm -hmm. to really... Yeah have an experience that I haven't had before. And this director has done that and then some, and I cannot recommend pretty much all his films. Like I said, we haven't gotten to a couple of them, but the one I want to bring up as we get, you know, relatively close to the end, uh, Swedish love story, dude. Swedish love story. Oh boy. Yeah, as I was watching this, I'm like, oh man. Yeah, it There's... sounds like this one hit you like a ton of bricks. There are moments where it's like uh <sighs> I just take like a sigh. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of go, ah, I do love movies after all. Cause because sometimes you can watch a string of mediocre things and you kind of go, hmm. Yeah, I should mm -hmm. probably focus on reading more or, you know, doing something else. And then you see Swedish Love Story. I'm like, gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> I want more <laughs> of this. It's, you know, my jam. It's, 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 it's a coming of age story. It's a romance. It's driven mainly by visuals. Uh, it does have his sense of humor at times. But sure. it's also sad, you know, and... What happens to that character at the end as he's having his own meltdown? It's almost like that could have been the lead in into the trilogy, you know, like what that whole sequence of them, like trying to find him and thinking that he might have drowned. Yeah, <laughs> the, where they're all yelling, John. Yeah. John! John! Yeah, <laughs> over and over and over again, and it becomes not comical. To that fog is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, 
I'll also briefly be talking about this with Keith Gordon because he did put this on his list of underrated films of the 70s. And I can see why. And it's not easy to find. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's very observational. Um, and, you know, a little, little bit of an enigma, but it's, it's, I still think it's accessible because we've all, you know, experienced some form of young love. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's totally a bit esoteric and disjointed, but like, yeah, who hasn't done that? Like stolen glances for the first like 20 minutes of their courtship <laughs> where it's like, she looks at him, he looks at her. They don't even talk, you know, like, and then, and then she's getting upset that he didn't, that she didn't talk to him and vice versa. And he rides away on the motorcycle and then he comes back and the music kicks up and it's like, it feels so relatable, but also like, it feels like you're 15. Yeah. No kidding. Oh, And, yeah. you know, listening to like him playing the guitar, <laughs> recording it on oh. the reel to reel. And eating the food and listening to it on mic. Yeah. It's so good. I'm like, holy cow. This is this is just so much like I mean I wouldn't say it directly reflects every experience I had when I was younger but and I I mean, it's kind of funny when I first saw the movie My Girl I was like oh this is kind of like my life I you know had a crush on the girl next door and sure. we hung out in prairies by the you know it's just like it could easily have been in a Malick movie or something and Yet, and with the same time, it had this, like, you know, sweetness to it. Um, oh, yeah. And that's, that's, yeah. Any time, any sort of really captivating coming of age story about young love really just speaks to me. But this one in particular, again, I think it's just because it's so visually striking and it isn't always driven by them having really long conversations about oh, I, I'm in love with you and everything is great and everything's awesome. And yeah. you know, it's really just about feeling and, and mood and that sort of, it's the freedom. way they look at each other and the way that they, they touch and there's all this like necking and yeah. probably to avoid them constantly kissing on screen just to make the actors more comfortable. Cause there's a lot of on-screen kissing, but also like, it's a lot to ask a 14 year old girl to kiss some mm -hmm. boy for, but like, so like, I'm sure the necking was like a way to convey intimacy, but like I, one thing that, so like one thing I just, to get into Swedish love story, the fact that it starts with an overture <laughs> and the theater curtains, yep, didn't that remind you of the music box? And like, I was like, I know. fuck, I miss the music box. I miss it so much. Well, that's I, funny because, you know, Patrick and I have been talking via email about it about something you already know about mm -hmm. uh yeah and I, I it was after i watched this and maybe that sort of brainwashed me <laughs> to say like i think we got to make this happen even if it's pretty expensive to do i really miss going to the music box oh and my god seeing a 35 millimeter print like when i saw johnny guitar uh at the music box, Nicholas Ray's brilliant Western. Uh, and I, cause I wasn't in the best of moods and I went and I saw that and I'm like, Oh my God, this is a, just a gorgeous movie. 
I want to see every every Nicholas Ray movie in the same setting. Uh, and yeah, like, please, if I can figure out and if there is a print available of Swedish Love Story, let me know. <laughs> I want to get this. Oh, this in the to... theater would be so. Oh, because especially the I watch it on my computer and I have a big computer, it's like 30 inches and I'm close to it. So it's like it felt big, but like. It's. It, there's so many silhouetted shots of them on the bikes at sunset that are so beautiful. And you can feel that like summer heat. And especially, I don't have to tell you, but in Chicago over the past couple of weeks, Ooh. the thought of them just driving around on their bikes all day. And it's like, they're just hanging out in this like fucking beautiful Swedish town. <laughs> it's like, I know. Um, and also just, so two things I wanted to say, I wrote down some notes on this one. I was, I had a question for you, Jim. <laughs> Go for it. I was curious because I know this movie spoke to you. Did you ever get a leather jacket when you were younger? Yes. And how <laughs> did that feel the first time you tried on and saw yourself in a leather jacket? Uh, I felt like James Dean. I just felt cool. I was like, this is... There was nothing cooler. I know. <laughs> it, I mean, like, a lot of the punk rockers sure. were wearing them too, but... Yeah. Oh, my God. I... I think it was after it's it's funny because I've I've sort of fluctuated all my life with weight like it's sometimes it's where I want it to be and then sometimes I gain and certainly during the pandemic ooh well what what can I say like I said I haven't been exercising as much but in my 20s when I did drop like 50 pounds I went I went and got myself a leather jacket and I felt like I was the shit <laughs> oh my god but, I bet yeah. you did. Yeah. And I bet you were because that confidence. Mm-hmm. Something about a leather jacket. There's a picture of me and I'm like 18 or 19. And I'm in a leather jacket and I'm smoking a cigarette. Ugh. And now I can't fucking look at that picture without thinking <laughs> what an asshole. But at the time, I remember someone posted it on Facebook. And I remember thinking like, this could be the coolest picture that's ever existed of me in my lifetime. <laughs> like, yeah because at the time it's like i'm wearing a fucking leather there's something i don't know what it is about a leather jacket but there's a scene in the movie where the kids try on a leather jacket and then it cuts to the girl and she has a leather jacket on and you know they both just think like this is the year i'm the coolest like this is the year i pop you know and so i've got good. a question for you yeah was there was there a time you know when when you had a girlfriend you know, you're getting a little little cuddly while home alone and, uh, you know, mom or dad pops up like they come home early from work. Do you uh, do you hide? <laughs> did you hide? Oh, how did yeah, you, no, you handle that situation? Definitely been some situations when I was younger. Uh, yeah, no, there's definitely yeah. I can definitely think of some situations where either girls that I had over or when I was at a girl's house. And now looking back on it, it's like so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's also, uh, like I said, you know, at first I was a little worried because I'm like, Oh, these are 15 year olds or whatever. Yeah. But there's again, the sweetness to it. There's an innocence. It's not creepy. It's not gross. No, the camera doesn't linger. Right. And, it, it it's so the cameras so one thing that i want to talk about with speech love story is the camera's almost too tight mm. like it's a i would say it's about i was 
kind of doing the math and I was nerding out a little bit and I was like, this almost is like shot like at a, like a 70 millimeter, 75 millimeter where Seth would be shot at like a 50 millimeter lens. And I even looked up to see if it was shot in 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter if they were just, because that's a different tightness. Yeah. So like movies that are 35 millimeter can go wider than movies that are 16 because the lenses, because it's a smaller film. But I was thinking like it, there, it's 35, so it's definitely intentional. You know, like it's almost like things are struggling to be in the frame, and it's probably symbolizing young and when you you can only see this tiny. You know what I mean, though. It's like there's so many crowd shots where the camera's searching for someone. It's so tight, and it's such a juxtaposition with the rest of his career that is so wide that no one ever occupies even a tenth of the frame for the rest of his movies. Like, you know what yes. I mean? Like, there's so many shots in Roy Anderson movies mm-hmm. where there's people in the foreground and there's like a a hundred extras in the background, they're dots. (laughs) Right. But Swedish Love Story is like a biker crew of six people, and I want to say there's like four wide shots in the whole movie, and one of them is the last shot of the movie, and that one feels the most like a Roy Anderson shot. No, totally. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking like that shot could lead into the uh, trilogy. And it's like, I know after this film, he had a nervous breakdown, and he went to worked at a hotel as a bartender after he made Swedish Love Story. Ugh. Wow. And it was almost like he just re- rejected every. I think it's a shame because I think, but it shows that he's a true master because only a true master and certain filmmakers, and I know some of your favorites too, their early stuff and their later stuff are so different. And they're like rejecting the early stuff, but it's like, oh, I fucking love the early stuff and I love the new stuff, but that person hates it. But they're such a master, they understand it so well that they can do two completely different styles. So an opposite that if you ask 20 people of Swedish love story and about endlessness for the same director, no one would say yes, but mm. they're so perfect for the style that only the, a master could do both. You know what I'm saying? I know. No, totally. That's what I'm saying. It's like in the seventies, he, he, he did something amazing and then flashback way in advance, way later. He was still, he still did something amazing, but also totally different. Totally different. And it's a rejection of the early stuff. Like his Swedish love story features just kids and parents are miserable. Those parents are newer stuff. His newer (laughs) stuff is like the parents are miserable and they don't even have kids. Like, yeah, like, or their kids are grown and they become disappointments. Like, (laughs) yeah, the, the, the little outing they have, the sort of like, family get together with neighbors and all that stuff that yeah. also made me melancholy because i'm like that's what we did that's uh, people parents used to be like hey let's get the neighbors over and a bunch of friends and hang out and yeah. barbecue outside or whatever and nah, that's, that's that doesn't happen at all now for obvious reasons i miss it yeah i know right it's 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 crazy and that one Oh, that towards the beginning too. That one, I get he, he's probably the grandfather. I, I guess who's oh my yeah the things he's saying, like this world isn't made for lonely people and stuff. Good lord, it's and you can tell the little boy just wants to leave because it's like yeah. granddad's a bummer. Right, it's like and it's you know like he's oh grandpa wants these certain type of sandwich and he's kind of mean <laughs> like he's you know like. You know, who does he respond to? He responds to that fucking asshole that works at the <laughs> the auto shop that just does like weird growls. Right, you know what right. I mean? Just like, like 
to be young is youth is wasted on the the young. <laughs> it's like I feel like what certain elements are of his characters are thinking in that movie. You know what I mean? Like they just resent like Jan when he <laughs> says he looks at his wife and he says. I have wasted the last 45 years of my life. And I'm pretty sure that character is probably 45, right? Mm -hmm. So then, and then he disappears and you think he's dead and his wife is crying. And so at that point, his wife thinks the last thing that her husband will ever say to her is I've wasted the last 45 years of my life. And then he dies. (laughs) And meanwhile, everyone's wearing lobster bins (laughs) and tiny hats looking for him. (laughs) I know. It's amazing. Like those uh, little touches that you would never see oh, in anything yeah. else are just sublime. Oh, yeah. And that's and, that's how yeah, I feel about so all good. of his films is really the ones I watched. I'm like, this is all right. This is why I do this damn show. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's truly a great filmography for that point to talk about, because in in I mean, we watched four films and all of his films are under two hours. Yep. And that's pretty rare. And it's like, in four films, you can span 50 years, roughly, and two completely different styles. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting, because I feel like Swedish Love Story has such good needle drops oh. and such good live music that I wrote down some of the lyrics from that band that's playing in that red that's, club. Yeah, I need to find that he, band. He, it's like, would you like to be everything you see? Would you like to see everything you'll be? Would you like to go everywhere you know? Would you like to know everywhere you go? And it's literally just like this weird singing to teenagers talking about like, would they want to know the rest of their life? And all they care about is like peeking at the other girls. And it's like, that's such a vibe and it's such a good movie and it's this extreme close-up of the lead singer's face who you never see again who has incredible facial hair and it's just (laughs) like it's just this takeaway and it's bathed in this red light that is now very popular with like nicholas winding Refn and other filmmakers but like it's just like it oozes style it's so intriguing to me that someone could be capable of this and then just be like so depressed that that's what they made yeah I, I just can't fathom it. You know, this could be a director's club first, but I'm going to live right now add Swedish Love Story to my top 100 films of all time. Boom. This is, I mean, you first. thought this was going to be a short episode. This is going to be <laughs> a monumental moment. You've been doing director's club for n- nine years? Ten. Ten years? Yeah. Ten, this is the 10th anniversary and this is the first time you've added a film on the air to your top 100. I think it's going in between Blue Collar and D- Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Oh, I think what, what what number are we talking? 48. 40, this broke the top 50. Yep. It's, wow. it's going in there right now. So for all the folks who just listened to uh, <laughs> the, the top the, the the new favorite films of all time top 100 list already outdated yep and that was that was just out a month ago with uh with bill ackerman so wow yeah bill is gonna be pissed i know he's gonna kill me he's gonna listen to oh. this and he's just gonna somehow teleport 
from where he is and just you know i'm pretty sure outside philadelphia right yeah yeah pretty close i've never i've you know i've never met bill but i've i've run in similar circles as bill for a while i i know people that know bill (laughs) he seems very nice incredibly nice and his show is great uh no again another hiatus but understandable it's a lot of work that he puts into that supporting characters great podcast great podcast 100 percent uh so what are your top three roy anderson films as we wrap up all right top three um you know this is live on the air because i did not think this far ahead uh let's see i'm gonna go number three pigeons it's not a branch reflects my existence because i've seen it the most i also think this is a weird note but I think his movies translated really well to HD filmmaking mm. because Pigeon was like the first movie where he's able to shoot something at super high res to and super deep focus to really show depth in a way that I feel like he was really excited about. And he really used that, I think, in interesting ways in Pigeon. And uh, also it has a really good dance number at a, like a dance studio that we didn't talk about that I quite <sighs> enjoy. With the stomping, <laughs> yep, and the flirtatious oh. uh, teacher, I, I find that quite funny. So I would say that's number three. I would put Swedish Love Story at number two. Um, we haven't even talked about the motorcycles they ride around on. I find them hysterical. Mm. They think they're so cool, and they go like fifteen miles yep. per hour. Yep, <laughs> love that movie. Um, happy it's in your top forty-eight, and. Number one, I'm going to go with You the Living because uh, You the Living to me feels like I like that it feels like he was trying new things a little bit. Like Pigeon to me feels a return to songs for the second floor, but like yeah. You the Living has like a, he addresses stuff straight to camera in it in a way that he never does. He's breaking the fourth wall, I think, in interesting ways that I don't normally like, but I think it's successful. There's also. Right some shocking camera movement in it where he slightly moves the camera during that weird fucking what I can only assume to be a grossly fascist men's club where they're all wearing those sashes where the guy steps out to talk to his son who keeps borrowing money and not paying back people. Mm. Beautiful shot in that That's one. Right. So I would so I'd put that one as number one. Um, you the living to me feels like the most uh, I find it the funniest, and I think it has the most pointed uh, criticism of like fascism in a way that I feel like goes a little bit beyond just um, the stuff that talks about That's like true. depression or people that are. He's clearly very. I I think that like people think he's cynical, but I I really think if you watch his movies, he's highly sympathetic to people that are having a hard time. Not that people that have it hard, but people that are just having a hard time. Yeah. And I think he's highly sympathetic to those people. And as someone that struggles with depression, even though I'm a very lucky individual, I, I, I find that that avenue to try to talk about, to, to make an artistic statement on, to be just really interesting and hyper-specific in a way that I feel like a a lot of filmmakers don't do. So 
So I just, I appreciate that. So I would say those are my top three. Wow. Couldn't send, couldn't say it better myself uh, in regards to my number three, which is you, the living. Uh, I agree with everything you said. I just think it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's an introduction to a style that I, I definitely, I can't see myself ever getting sick of. I mean, Sure. I know on Letterboxd, Mike D'Angelo, I think for Pigeon, only gave it three stars and said, all right, enough of this style. <laughs> I don't think there's anywhere he can go. But then again, uh, for about endlessness, he did give it three and a half and say, okay, you can still you can still do great stuff with this style. Yeah, so. interesting. Uh, I'm, exci- I, I'm excited for about it. I've only heard that it's worse than Pigeon, but I'm excited that someone likes it more, so... Yeah, I I I yeah, I think I've heard a few people like it more. It's, it's I think it's the shortest one. It's like 75 minutes. Yeah, that's fucking killer. So that might even be what I watch. I'm debating between watching that and the uh the uh the cans cut of Southland Tales which has just arrived uh, by my, my mailbox. So Ooh, You know me and Southland I really want to watch that. Yeah. I really I I saw that movie in the theater. Yeah. I saw the music box for the Chicago Critics Film Festival with Richard Kelly there. What? I didn't even know the Chicago Critics Film Festival was going on then. Yeah. No, I mean, it was the, it was an anniversary screening. Oh, okay. I was like, what? It's been going since 2007? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. okay. It must have been 2017, no, I, I, I guess. Oh, I'm saying I saw it in its original theatrical run. Wow. At the Cantero uh, Number two. let me tell you. I was the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what that's what it was for me and Donnie Darko. No one, no one there, <laughs> and after nine eleven. So, oh, oh, what a double bill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It was Jeez. like maybe six weeks after nine eleven that movie came out, and wow, I was I was the only one who I guess who was like, I need to escape what's going on in the world. And I need to watch a plane crash movie. Yeah, I know. I saw that. I was like, oh, great. Could you imagine making a movie that has a plane crash to end the movie that kills your main character and being like, yeah, it's coming out a month after 9-11? <laughs> that's a tough break. I, Yeah, that's there, there's a reason why it didn't catch on until video. Um, yeah. but Sorry to interrupt your top three, but that's just I never thought about that. That's a tough break. It is. It's been a tough break for Richard Kelly's all three of his movies, and I like them all. I would say I love them all. Well, maybe not Donnie Darko as much, but I'll, I'll, I'll anyway. Richard Kelly you episode the in, in the future. Proud of you. Thank you. Proud of you. Uh, <laughs> number two is songs from the second floor. Like I said, uh, that's that's kind of an overwhelming experience at times. Uh, certainly, again, a lot of fun, a lot of funny segments, but also really powerful ending i think that might be my favorite ending of all the movies oh oh yeah i've seen so that probably one of the reasons why it's so high but of course number one is you know swedish love story without question so there thank you man i (laughs) you you uh introduced me to a truly astonishing director here on director's oh, I'm, I'm glad i'm glad you, i'm glad you liked it i'm glad you liked it yeah and i'm I, I was we were talking back and forth 
and you seem to be liking it. And then I'm glad that Swedish Love Story was your last one because it seemed like, obviously, it's in your top 50 of all time. I know. That I'm just, I'm, I, I love Roy Anderson and I feel like I've been a part of some more challenging filmmakers in the past. And even though Roy Anderson has his challenging moments, I think that like, he's a severely underseen filmmaker. And if, if people like film in like a way that's truly international, I think they'd have a lot of time for Roy Anderson. I hope they do. And uh, really quickly, the one film it's like, geez, it's 140 minutes, but it's very hard to find. However, Bill has located a DVD of Giliop, G-I-L-I-A-P, from 1975. That's a movie, doesn't seem to have a lot of raves, but it's a Roy Anderson movie, so I will likely watch that at some point maybe within the year and let, yeah. let you know how to snag a copy if possible definitely curious about it i mean it's the movie that made him quit feature filmmaking for 25 years so even just as a i mean i'm 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 the guy watching vigo mortensen directorial debuts so i'm definitely just curious to watch <laughs> movies that people make right yeah for sure and well we'll see you know i'm sure sooner than later i'm gonna watch about endlessness and we'll touch base about that uh what yeah i'm curious curious your thoughts on it what, are, what I'm, excited, I'm excited to watch it myself where are people gonna find you because uh well obviously you're on letterbox people can follow you there I'm, i don't know what my name is on letterbox honestly i'm really bad at social media sean uh, m name... pierce okay so it's sean m pierce on letterbox um and it's sean m pierce on instagram uh, that's really the only two social medias I look at. Um, yeah, but what I would say is if you like to talk about Roy Anderson, you guys should uh, just uh, listen, keep listening to the Director Club podcast. I, I, I think my first time on was, in, what, 2013 or 2014? It's crazy. Been a, I've been a fan for a long time, and I, I think I found – you all because Jim used to comment a lot on film junk because I have been a long time film junk listener and I was so excited that someone else was from Chicago. So um, I believe, did you go by Jim the movie freak? Was that the handle? <laughs> yeah. yeah oh it. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I've been listening to film junk since 2009. Those, so those, those are the I good old say, days. Oh yeah. I, I love film junk. Um, still listen, still a fan. And uh Director's Club has been awesome. It's been great to get to know. I've been lucky to go to a couple of Jim's birthday parties where he does a really fun clip show type uh, oh, presentation. Right. Yeah. Those oh, are yeah. Great. And those are very fun. And uh, also Patrick uh, was a big part of Director's Club back in the day and still was. But, yeah, Director's Club is awesome. And I'm uh, happy to... I've been a returning guest. Thanks, so, man. Thanks I'm, for having me. You're going to be back again, I'm sure. Uh, hey, if you do uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. Yeah, that's a I good will, one. I would literally, I've, I've bought all the Japanese imports because they're the same region. And I, I've i seen all those movies. I fucking love him. Might be the same and, time next year, I'm thinking. Might well, be. Oh, I, I wasn't sure if you're going to do it next year. So that's great news. And 
I'm thinking about if it. If you do yeah. it, I would uh, happily return for Corieta because that's literally one filmmaker where I've seen. I think I've seen every one of his movies in the past ten years in theaters. So, and now that he's won a Palme d'Or, people actually care about him. So that's <laughs> that's cool because most of the filmmakers I like that I want to do directors club are either. Uh, Steven Soderbergh or no one gives a shit about. So uh, good, good to know. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned film junk because my next guests are Frank and Sean from Film Junk. Amazing. We're gonna be talking about David O. Russell in mid March. Um, I know we're we're likely focusing on, I believe, Three Kings and Silver Linings Playbook, but. Like most of these episodes, we'll likely touch on pretty much everything, I would think. Because it's not a huge filmography. And most of them are pretty rewatchable and fun. So I'm I I, I love flirting with disaster. I mean obviously yeah. I'll talk I'll talk about it on the episode proper, but I'm <laughs> I'm excited Give to have these guys on. Spank the monkey thoughts or uh, some, uh... What's the nailed that movie he made that he disowned with Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, it's called you know, Accidentally like... Accidental Love. Now, terrible title. Oh my god! I watched it. It was bad. I'm gonna watch it. I'm sure it's bad, but I'm gonna watch it anyway. <laughs> it was it was bad, but it was watchable. Yeah, and he's working on something now with a huge ensemble, and hopefully yeah, that goes smoothly and nobody gets yelled at. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure people will get yelled at. Yeah, it's really sad. <laughs> he seemed like such a nice guy when I met him. I met him for Silver Lightning's playbook when he was. You met him? Did you do an interview? No, no. I just briefly. He was there for the screening at the Chicago International Film Festival. Did a Q and A. Oh. Seemed a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, a little. I don't know. Self absorbed, but I here. I I know you're you're clearly wrapping this up, but yes, I I, I got to ask on, on air. What was a director or actor that you saw met in person at a Q&A or maybe interviewed that you were like, whoa, that person seems like a bit of an asshole? Ooh. <laughs> wow. It's funny. I don't know if... Let me think about that. I don't know if... Hmm. It's, you would think that would be instantaneous something I would know right away. Or, 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 if you if you don't know that one right away, have you ever been that person at a Q and A to ask a question, and now in retrospect you're kicking yourself that you asked a question? No, I'm usually too shy to be honest. I it, okay. I'm really like, I'm fine one on one. I really am, obviously, and yeah. that's why podcasts work so well for the most part. But. In large group settings, yeah, I get, I get, I get, I get a little tongue-tied and nervous. I so wanted to ask Sarah Polly some questions for the uh, stories we tell screening, but I just couldn't do Where's it. Where's her next movie? I know. <laughs> what is going on there? I think I even tweeted at her once. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure is, you're. Is no one this... giving her money or what? Because like, why is A24 or some fucking company not just Annapurna not just like writing her a fucking check? Yeah, I don't know. After stories we tell, I was like, come on, keep 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 them coming. Whatever it is, yeah, that was like 
five years ago. Like, what's going on, Sarah Polly? She's well, she's tweeting and being a mom right now. That's all. Oh yeah, nothing, nothing wrong with being mom. I'm just, I'm just. She just made awesome shit, and it's like, like I thought she was because the the movie and the doc came out like back to back. I was like, oh, she's here to stay, and then it was like silent. Yeah, I know that bums me out when that happens, but oh well, and. You know, someone like David Gordon Green is stuck making Halloween sequels now, and I'm like, Ugh. I I do love David Gordon Green. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I, I will say I, I have a soft spot for David. I really Green. want to do another episode on him, actually, too, because the first one is when we were like, I don't know, we were babies. It was like episode six. Oh no, I've listened to it. I've listened. Well, I mean, a long time ago. Yeah, but yeah. No, I I love David Gordon Green. Like I I recently just rewatched. Uh, uh, Manglehorn? No, I I okay. Manglehorn is legit. Was in my top uh, ten of in top twenty maybe of the decade. I love Manglehorn. That's my favorite of his Texas trilogy. Wow, I need to watch that again. I loved it though. It's been forever. Oh yeah. Well, he's got that Joe, and then what's the third one? I just watched it Prin- literally last week. Prince Avalanche. Prince Avalanche. Yeah. Prince Avalanche. Yeah. Yeah. That. It wasn't as good as I remember it, I'll be honest. Nah, but it's okay. It's just, it's just the shots of the road and like oh, the yeah are so good. And there's some really cool shots in that movie. Like that was like his return to forming a little bit after some after like the sitter and oh, your highness. Oh. I <laughs> I love that now we're just talking about directors, but. I don't know. It's fun to talk. I, yeah, I'm yeah. It's been, it's been a while, and I'll apologize a little to the audience. It's been a while since Sean and I have been able to talk at all, so uh, yeah, sorry. we're catching I'm up. Like, just prolong it by talking <laughs> about David Gordon Green and just being like, hey, what are your thoughts on this guy? Yeah, but uh, no, David Gordon Green, he, he has a banger in the wings, I, I think, but... I don't know. It's been a while, know. and he's... he does a lot of like shitty TV. Like he directs like episodes of like Dickinson. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, that's sad. But I, man, now I want to rewatch Joe. Since when I first saw that, I loved it too. It's been a while. Oh, I I talked to David Gordon Green at a screening of Joe. Uh, that was a big moment for me. That's awesome. Yeah. I would not but be able to separate story. I would not be able to shut up about all the real girls if I met David Gordon Green. I'd be like, uh, "This is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing." Oh, and this and this. It was embarrassing. I I ran into him going to the bathroom. He was standing outside, and of course I recognized him. And I was like, Dude. "Hey, just wanted to say, uh, big fan of Undertow." And I I'm not even a big fan of Undertow. I just said that. I don't even know why. Yeah. And he was like, "Thanks." He was like, that was cool. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, I don't know why. And it was like, he was clearly just talking to uh, Ty Sheridan because he was also there at the screening. And so I was just kind of like interrupting them to say I liked Undertow. And I don't really know why I did that. It's weird. Like, <laughs> when you run, when you come across somebody that you really love, some things oh, just yeah. come out unexpectedly. I was more in shock to when I my the first time I ever went to the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards when they used to do a big gala event mm-hmm. where they would actually fly in some celebrities and stuff and that's when I first met Ebert but then after I met Ebert I walked over to the bathroom and 
out comes Steven Spielberg with his bodyguard. And when I saw when I, when I made eye contact with Steven Spielberg, I, my mouth opened and nothing came out. But oh. he walked right past pretty quickly, like he had somewhere to go. So I didn't want to be like chasing after him or being like, oh, Spielberg, you know, Spielberg. But hey, I ran into him. So he, he I, we made eye contact once. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. I, this podcast has run very long. Yes, I got to go. But <laughs> So I will not keep you. But one day I'll tell you the story of when I ran in and hung out with Steven Soderbergh in a bar. Oh, and we can uh, that's going to be good at a later day. It's it'd yeah. be basically it's just like Schizopolis then. I'm sure it I will say I did bring up Schizopolis, but that's a story for a different day. Thank you so much, Sean. We're going to talk again real soon. And maybe maybe in a month we'll run into each other. I look forward to it. Yeah.